Father, we thank you for this time. We ask that you uh, be with us again as we go through your word, as we study the great doctrine of justification by faith and what that means and how we, um, how we are brought uh, before you no longer condemned, not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything that you've done for us in Christ. And so we ask that you would again um, help us to appreciate and stand in awe of your great mercy toward us in Jesus. Uh, be with us today as we, um, as we learn more of you and prepare our hearts, we pray for the next service as well um, in the preached word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've been going through Leviticus. Uh, last week we went through the ritual of the Day of Atonement. And we've been going through the laws uh, of Israel given, given by God to the people through Moses. And they address a very fundamental problem, which is, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of a holy people? Of an unholy people. It's not holy. They're very sinful. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? And this is what the law keeps going back to again and again, addressing this problem. Remember that they've built a tent for God to dwell in at His instruction, and uh, He is now living in their midst in this tent, and things happen. Uh, he has um, uh, a people around Him who are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, who by nature uh, rebel against His covenant, and there has to be a way for Him to dwell among them, or He, he, he goes Nadab and Abihu on them and slaughters them. Um, his justice demands it. So how does he uh, handle that? And we've seen that with each breaking of the law by the people, it was not just the person doing it that was affected. It's not just their own um, safety or their own sin. It was everyone else that touched them. We saw this in the purity laws, the picture there. Everyone else that touched them, anything they touched the person, I mean, all kinds of ways for this thing to be transmitted. This impurity is a picture of the impurity of the immoral uh, action by, on the part of the people. And so it all goes back to ultimately affecting God's house, God's tabernacle. But we also saw, last week especially, that God was gracious, that He made a way, one way, for them to be um, atoned for, for them to be able to be in His presence he makes a way for the cumulative sins of the people, the cumulative impurities that affect his house, to be removed. His just and necessary judgment is removed through his gracious provision of a substitute. And we saw three pictures of that last week. We saw, um, first, the, the purity sacrifices, right? The, the purification sacrifices. Uh, one for Aaron, the high priest, and one for the people, there was the bull and the ram, and then there were the two goats that we saw, or, or the, the uh, yeah, goats for the people. So that's one, the purity sacrifices. Then we had the scapegoat, where they would put their hands on the goat and send him out into the wilderness, and we got into a lengthy discussion on Azazel, who, what that meant. And then we saw, finally, the burnt offering, the atonement, the final, the final offering there, where a sacrifice was placed uh, for them. What did the people do? Do you remember? What was the requirement for the people? What were they, what were they to do? Chapter 16, very end of it. There were three things. 
They were to do it once a year. They'd be faithful in making sure this was done. They were to hold their leadership accountable for things to be done the way they were supposed to be done. It's a very Republican mind there. Um, what else? Maybe more libertarian, I don't know. What else? They were to do no work. They were to rest. So it was nothing that they did themselves, nothing they were to do. They did no work. All right, what else were they to do? They were to show, show signs of humility, and, and fasting was part of that. Um, sometimes bathing and other things were part of that. Basically, um, they are to be humble, being in a posture to receive. They're to rest and do no work, and they are to do this annually without fail. Essentially, they're passive. And while God makes the provision for them, they are to trust His provision. Built into the sacrificial system of Israel is this idea that God provides and the worshipers to trust what God has provided. That's the whole thing. He's built... It's a physical representation of what they're to do. There's a substitute, and I trust that that substitute applies to me. That's built into the system itself. Um, all right. In the 1500s, a certain German monk, who's very mysterious and we don't know much about him, would have that truth dawned upon him as he worked his way through Paul's letter to the Romans. There was an issue with... with, with uh, <clears throat> Mr. Luther, um, as used by Paul in Romans, the word justification may be defined as the act by which unjust sinners are made right in the sight of a just and holy God. How is a person to be made right before God? Biblical Christianity is unique, and we've, we've talked about this several times. Biblical Christianity is unique in that Every other religion in the world, every other worldview in the, in the world, is built upon the premise of better yourself. You work to, see, to achieve nirvana. You work to achieve heaven. You work to achieve um, uh, communist utopia. You work to achieve whatever. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there, but yes. You, you work to achieve your best life now through your awesomely awesome faith. Um, Biblical Christianity is unique in that it is about what God has accomplished on behalf of His people. Not what humans achieve, but what God has accomplished. That's the, that's the distinction. Um, this idea of trusting in the work of Christ alone was largely abandoned by the powers that be uh, by the time of Luther. Roman Catholic doctrine taught and teaches uh, that baptism is the primary cause of justification and that the sacrament of penance is the secondary restorative cause when a person really screws up. So they get baptized as babies and that washes away original sin. They still wanted to be true to Augustine. And yes, it is Augustine. Uh, and uh, they, they thought that baptism would wash away that original sin. Um, and then when somebody messes up, they would do works of penance. Now, there are other, other sacraments in there that would, that would garner. But the point is they get merit. And that merit makes them or keeps them uh, righteous before God. And this caused a lot of problems for Luther because he took the Bible seriously. 
uh, he took his own sin seriously and realized there's not enough merit in the world to atone for my sin. I just did it again. And so it drove him nuts. I mean, he, I don't know. Has anybody seen the movie Luther? Mm-hmm. I, I, man, the picture of him in the little cubicle, the little monastery thing, just screaming at the devil about his own, you know, leave me alone, leave me alone. I don't know how accurate that is, but it seems to be based on what he wrote about his own experience. Um, he was tormented by the idea. He, he, he said at one point, I hated that term, righteousness of God. Because in the idea of the day, that term righteousness of God, especially in, when he was getting to Romans 1.17, uh, he, he viewed it as the righteousness by which God thumps me, which he condemns me. That's what he's grading me by. And I can never reach it. I can never be good enough. There's not enough penance I could do. There aren't enough stones on the floor for me to scrub to earn righteousness to, to meet that bar. He just couldn't do it. So as he began this study through uh, Romans, well, let me let me ask you this: Do you remember those little demerit cards in school? Remember those? Where you don't? You went to one of those little progressive schools. Everybody's good. Uh, oh, okay. Well, demerit. <laughs> A much better scorecard, anyway. Um, the little demerit cards, where you're you're in class and Johnny has, you know. Squares across, and if you if you you can either get a red X or a green X. Mine was always green. Uh, it's the money. It's the money X. And the green X, and then uh, or you get a gold star, right? So if you get a demerit, you can cover it with a gold star if you do something good, and that way a note will go home to your mom, and you won't get popped later. Um, so you have so many demerits get you in trouble. You go to educational purgatory or whatever, and then you have uh, then you have the gold stars that can cover your demerits, and then you get to a certain level of demerits, you have achieved perfection for the day, right? That's kind of what, and it's a simple, stupid explanation, but it's kind of what the deal is here. There's a constant give and flow, uh, a give and take, uh, uh, an ebb and flow, there's the word, uh, of, of demerit and righteousness. Demerit and merit. Merit would cancel out. It's a true-false test. You're only penalized if you get it wrong. Right? And this is, the, this is the system which had developed because if you have the church, and I'm just getting a little, if you have the church giving the means of grace out through baptism, and yeah, that's enough penance, then you have the church doling out a treasury of merit that all the saints who have lived their great lives have given uh, this excess. They can dole it out. So the church becomes the mediator of merit, the mediator of righteousness for the people. That's the, that's the system he was living in. Um, Luther's insight was sparked by his study of Romans 1.17. You know, 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the power of God unto salvation. Jew first and the Greek. And he says, for, in verse 17, for it is, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or another translation would say, or beginning and ending in faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so when they, a, a good Roman Catholic thinker would read that verse and say, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel because he's going to thump me. That's how it's revealed. But Luther said, and I'll just uh, quote him, 
he, he began to read it in, in context. He, he, he said he was pounding on the Apostle Paul, pounding on the text. And he began to see that term, righteousness of God, in context. The righteous shall live by faith is the way the verse ends. He then understood that the righteousness of God here was not a club to beat us, but a cloak to cover us. That's the distinction. He said this, at, 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 uh, and this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely, the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, He through, who through faith is righteous shall live. And I love this. I'll add this in. He, he, here, Luther says, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Here, a totally other face of the entire Scripture showed itself to me. And some would say and argue and have argued that Luther pulled justification by faith alone out of the air, out of his head. Didn't come before him. Uh, well, you remember, he was an Augustinian monk. And Augustine would say things like this, For you did not obtain favor by yourself so that anything should be owed to you. Therefore, in giving the reward of immortality, God crowns his own gifts, not your merits. He gives faith. He makes the way. And there are many other quotes from August, Augustine. Philip's in my head. Uh, Augustine on, the, on that uh, issue. Some argue it was added by Augustine. So others argue that the doctrine of justification by faith alone was an invention of the Apostle Paul. Because that's always a good practice to pit Scripture against pit Scripture. That just makes for a really fun time. And it gets you academic um, <clears throat> kudos. Anyway, so you have this idea that Paul, especially in Ephesians 2.8, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Um, you have Paul saying these things, and you just don't, you simply don't see it in the words of Jesus, is what these people would argue. Um, and it's really, I mean, if you look at some of the statements of Jesus, it's kind of easy to see how they would come to that conclusion, right? I mean, he says things like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Yikes. Um, however, Probably one of the clearest teachings of Christ on how we're made right is found in a parable. Found in a parable. I don't know that we've gone through this in this class. Um, Luke 18. Luke 18 is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it can be quite involved to, get, to go through all of this. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I don't want to get too bogged down in some of the detail, but some would argue that this parable is about uh, our posture in prayer. Let me read it. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I don't think this is a parable about posture and prayer. I think it's one of the clearest pictures that we have of Christ on how we're made right. Let's kind of set this up. Who's he, who's he talking to? Who's the audience here? Verse 9. What does it say? People who trusted in themselves. People who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. righteous. And despised others. Isn't that true of all of us? Don't we all have a nice little standard that we set out there and judge everyone else by it, right? Um, You're not as conservative as I am. You're not as liberal as I am. You're not as libertarian as I am. You're not not a Calvinist. You're not an Arminian. You're not a Republican. You're not Democrat. You're not uh, tall enough. we all have standards by which some of us fail to measure. And, and we, we don't even follow our own standards. We fail in our own standards, but we still beat other people with our own standards. We have two understandings of righteousness. What does it mean to be made a righteous person? One understanding is he's a decent person, um, or he can really ride a good wave. I'm thinking of Nemo, righteous, but anyway. He's a decent person who maintains an admirable uh, standard of morality and obeys the law. That was the great understanding of Greek culture is that that's a righteous person, someone who's very moral. Uh, And and, um, to a great extent, uh, common Jewish understanding at the time. But the root understanding of the Greek New Testament term for righteousness comes from the Hebrew Old Testament. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the righteous person is not the one who observes a particular code of ethics, but rather a person or community granted a special relationship of acceptance in the presence of God. From its earliest days, right-thinking Israelites celebrated Yahweh as the one who bestowed on His people the all-embracing gift of righteousness. You think of Micah 6, where he talks about all the different things that he's done. I brought you out of Egypt, I brought you across the desert, I fed you in the desert, I watered you... All this kind of stuff, and he says, that you may know my righteous deeds, that you may know my righteousness. Talking about the gracious saving acts of God uh, for his people. Uh, What's the the appropriate response here? Let's see. In verse verse 8, looking back. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's what he's looking for, faith on the earth. Um, The nature of righteousness is the focus of this parable. Will he find faith? What does that look like? It's the core question of any religion. How is one righteous before God? And that's the focus of the story. Where is the story located? What's the location for the story? 
we still in this parable? Yes, we are. I'm not moved. We're not verse verses nine through fourteen. Jerusalem. It's in Jerusalem. Uh, where's Jesus heading? Incidentally, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He's making the march to the cross here. I mean, before in in chapter seventeen, he heals the lepers, and it says he's on his way to Jerusalem. And in verse nine, chapter nineteen, we're going to see the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where he will be crucified. This is the so this is one of the last things that he's saying on his march to Jerusalem. All right, Leviticus scholars, two men went up into the temple to pray: one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. What is he talking about? What is he talking about? Do you remember the sacrifices that we talked about back, well, back in Exodus that they did daily? They did one at dawn and one at three, a lamb on the altar every day for the sins of the people. Remember this? When he talks about praying, that's what he's talking about. Um, prayer in the Middle East includes private prayer and public worship. Uh, in view here is that daily temple sacrifice. Lamb in the morning, lamb in the evening. It's a daily service in the temple that was atonement offering that took place at dawn at three. And it was a sacrifice of a lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the altar according to that precise ritual that we saw in Exodus and again in Leviticus. And at the, sound of the, at the time of the sacrifice, when it's done, there would be the uh, sound of silver trumpets and clanging of cymbals and the reading of a psalm. Um, the officiating priest would go into the holy place and offer incense, do the blood ritual that's involved with the sacrifice, and then come out and say, sins are atoned for, and then everybody would praise God, and, and that would be the, the, the liturgy of the, um, of the, of the service. Um, and we see this ritual in Luke 1.8. Remember when Zechariah was chosen to be the father of John the Baptist? He was a priest who got the lot, I guess, the, the long straw, because it wouldn't be the short straw, it would be a privilege, um, he, to go in to do this part of trimming the lamps and giving the blood onto the altar and all this kind of stuff. That's the ritual that, uh, that's in view here in this parable. And we have two actors in the parable. Who are they? The... Pharisee and the tax collector, right. So both are going up to pray at the same time. One is a very religious person, obviously so. The other is a commoner, one of the poor people. And uh, if you want a really good description, we won't go through it right now, but if you want a really good description of a Pharisee, uh, read Paul in Philippians chapter 3. He talks about what being a good Pharisee involves, because he was a Pharisee among Pharisees, a Jew among Jews. Who are the tax collectors? We talk a lot about Pharisees, but who are the tax collectors? Are they the Gentiles? Uh, no, not. not necessarily. They're loyalists to the Roman cause. They bought a franchise to be able to go browbeat their own countrymen out of money for their government. Um, they were invited to all the big parties, you know. And they usually stole. They well, they in order to 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 meet their quota of taxes. What's that? Some of them. Uh, in order to meet the quota that the government put on them, they had to have an association of people that would follow them. Thugs, basically. Extortioners. And if you're going to have those kinds of people, you're generally going to have certain type of women. Right? All right. You have debt collector thugs, basically. 
Um, look at the Pharisee. It starts with him praying. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Standing by himself. Some translations say standing, standing he prayed to himself, which seems to be very counterproductive. He's, he's praying to himself. That's not completely unusual. I mean, Hannah did that, right? When she was in, in, the, in Samuel, when she was, before she was pregnant with Samuel, she prayed loud and the, Eli thought that she was drunk, said, get out of here, what are you doing? She was praying, pouring out her heart, heart. So that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it makes a point here of saying he prayed to himself. Um, why, is he, why is he standing apart from everyone else? Why do you, why do you think that? He thinks he's better. What are we talking about? The, Pharisee. the Pharisee. Yeah, why is he standing by himself? He's probably, generally, this, the people who, are, it, it was a ranking thing. If you're, if you're holy, you stand toward the front, where, where God's presence is, or closer to God's presence than everybody, everybody else. So he's way up there. He's standing by himself away from everyone else, right? And he's praying to himself loudly. Remember our discussion through the purity laws, uh, the, the purification or cleanliness codes, codes. He probably did not want to be defiled. If he touched someone unclean, he would have to go through those rituals to be ceremonially clean again. It's like it, at Salsaritas, right before you get your food, and you see somebody come out of the bathroom, hey, and want to shake your hand. It's like, mm, hey, guy, or, you know, fist bump or whatever. He wanted to remain ceremonially clean before he is... All right, fine. Typically, they would pray out loud, and this gives him a great opportunity to do a little self-advertisement. Um, here's a question. Is this even a prayer? I thank you that I am not like other men. Probably not. No? What is prayer? What do we generally think of when we think of prayer? Generally think of contrition. Contrition, like humility. Heart, you know, Psalm 51. Right, right. Head bowed. Head bowed, every head bowed, every eye closed. What would you think? Part of his prayer was he doesn't even look up to the heavens. Like he's like, ah, God. <laughs> <laughs> I thank you, I am not like other men. Generally when we think of prayer, we think of three things. Repentance, thanksgiving or worship, a petition or a supplication to God for ourselves and others. Um, we did a thing last night with the kids where, where uh, we're going to try and see if this works because family worship is just such a struggle for us because everybody goes... Choo, 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 choo. But we tried to get everybody praying together and we tried to go through the Acts deal, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And, and Tammy had the idea, that was a good one, of just, just do one sentence. Just focus on one sentence because we always get into that kid who's bullying us at school. We always get into this thing over here. and just So it really it actually is a good, a good thing, but it focuses on what prayer is about, which is making much of God, confessing our own sin, thanking Him for His provision for us, and then, and then asking, praying for what uh, only He can provide. So that's not happening here. I thank you I'm not like other men. There's really no thanks at all in that, is there? Especially when you're praying that out loud. Yeah, yeah. He gives a list of what he's not thankful, well, of what he isn't. He's, he's not an extortioner. 
He's not unjust. He's not an adulterer. All of these would be associated with a tax collector of the Romans, by the way. These are the same kinds of people. In In fact, here in the flesh is a great example of what I'm not. Or even this tax collector, right? What does he do? I fast twice a week. They were only required to fast one time a year, which was before the Day of Atonement, which we just read about. That's the only time. And yet, he's doing it 104 times a year. So, man, he must really be holy. Um, All right. If anyone was righteous, this guy was. I give tithes of all I get. The Old Testament required the faithful to to tithe their grain, oil, and wine. But by the New Testament times, the rabbis required a tithe of whatever is used for food and is kept watch over and grows from the soil is liable to tithes. Uh, I guess we could say that they tithed on their gross rather than their their net, um, which would be very um, pharisaical. But then the rabbis, true to good legalists, constructed pages and pages of exceptions to the general rule. Um, All right. This Pharisee has them all beat. He does more than the Old Testament requires and more than the rabbis required, but the tax collector. Where's he standing? Far off. Far off in which way? He's not standing in front of everyone. He's in the back. In fact, he shouldn't even be there. He shouldn't even be in the place where everybody is. He is um, despised. He is culturally unclean because he betrayed his people to browbeat them for money. Um, He shouldn't be there. There should be some... um, some, some, some priestly bouncers that escort him out, but he's there. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. The Greek there implies not just that he stands far off, but he's way off. He's about as back in the back of the room as you can possibly be, maybe even having a foot out. But he doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven. When they pray, they would typically pray with their hands kind of like the I can't do it, American male. And when you did kind of up like this, and just like this in a humble thing, like I'm receiving. That's kind of the idea. It's not the Tim Hawkins, how many ways can we raise our hands kind of deal. It's just, it's just a thing. Um, he's way off. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. That's the typical pro- posture of prayer. Um, like a servant to his master. But then he does something extraordinary. He beat his breast, it says. What is that all about? What is that? He beat his breast. Why is he doing this? There's a cultural thing here. Um, And we see it sometime today, whenever you see the video footage of uh, another uh, attack by the religion of peace on the innocent, um, where maybe children are slaughtered some way or whatever. You see the women of those children beating their breast. You never see the men do it. It's a sign of great sorrow, great mourning, as if to say, it's all here. Everything that's wrong with me is all here. And they beat their chest again and again. We don't see it in Scripture except uh, in one place. The only time it's ever recorded in the whole Bible is in Luke 23, 48. And it was at the crucifixion. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home 
beating their breasts. And I assume that this included men as well as women, because that's it's an all-inclusive language. It takes the magnitude of a crucifixion to see this kind of expression. All that's wrong with me is here. That's what he's doing. Have mercy on me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. When at the end of uh, chapter 16, it talks about humble yourself. That's a heart issue. Even in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, we think cold law. It's a heart issue he's pointing to, even there. And this is a picture of it. Showing the, the faith, what a true obedience is, is having faith in God. It's not what you do, it's having faith. And, it, and, it's, a, and it's a humbling thing. Yeah. And he's showing that great humility. It's, um, it's not necessary uh, to know the Greek, to, to, to get everything you can out of Scripture. But sometimes it's helpful to kind of shed some light on, on some, some things. And I'm, I'm kind of disappointed in the ESV at this point. It's one of the few times that the eminently superior version has failed us. Um, it says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. The Greek there is the definite article, the. God be merciful to me, the sinner. And I know the NASB has it, the sinner, I think. Do you have the NASB? No? Okay. Who, anyway, I'll concede that, this one point. Why would it say the sinner? What is the what is the implication there? He feels like he's the greatest sinner in the world. We see that echoed somewhere else, don't we? He feels like he's the greatest sinner in the world. He's not comparing himself to anyone else. He's not comparing himself to anyone else. Unlike this, unlike this Pharisee, I'm not comparing myself to. Anyone. No, it, you're right. He is. He's the only one. It's just me look with favor upon me. I'm the only one who needs it, basically. I mean, that's kind of the idea. Paul says something similar to that, doesn't he? The chief among sinners. Uh, I'm, I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. And he would say things like that. There's a great humility here. And he's beating his chest. It's all wrong. Be merciful to me, the sinner. That word there, the, the be merciful, um, th- there's, a, there's a, one, of the, one of the stories of Jesus where he, a, a blind man calls out to him, Son of David, be merciful to me. That's fix me. That's one thing. That's not the word that's being used here. The word that's being used here is the Greek word for make atonement for me. Be propitious would be the $10 word to me. Take away your wrath from me. He recognizes who he is. Um, make atonement because I give tithes of all I get or I fast twice a week. That's not what he's saying. Make atonement. I have nothing to offer. I have empty hands. Make atonement for me. Um, I feel the focus of your holy gaze upon me, the sinner, of whom I am chief. All right. So both men... Watch the sacrifice of the spotless lamb on the great altar. They hear the trumpets and the cymbals, hear the reading of the psalm, and watch the blood splashed on the sides of the altar. They watch the priest disappear into the temple to offer incense before God, trim the lamps, and they see the priest appear shortly afterward, announcing the sacrifice has been accepted, and Israel's sins have been atoned for by the blood of the lamb. 
the trumpet blows again, and the incense wafts to heaven. One man praying about his human achievement, the other crying out for the accomplishment of the divine, the accomplishment of God. And how does Jesus assess these men? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. He doesn't even use the Pharisee's name here. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. That's outrageous. It's immediate. It's immediate declaration. Justification was immediate. He went down to his house justified. And then he says this, For everyone who exalts himself, or everyone who finds satisfaction in himself, will be humbled, will be utterly destroyed. But the one who humbles himself, who finds himself, recognizes that he's destroyed. The one who finds satisfaction in all that God is for us in Christ. The one who humbles himself will be exalted or created new. The tax collector yearns to receive the gift of God's saving act, his justification, while the Pharisee, the other, feels like he has already attained it. All right. All of us are um, like tax collectors. We're all rebels. We're all turncoats. None is righteous, no, not one. I've been in a... Well, I don't even know that I want to address that. Um, I've been in a discussion, <laughs> uh, one of those very profitable Facebook discussions, which always turns well because everybody reads motives so well across those things, and we all impugn each other graciousness. Um, part of the issue is uh, who, who, who does the faith, right? Um, who, who is, does a, uh, how do I say it? A person who believes in Christ, where does that come from? Where does it, where does that originate from? And the, the, the person of which I am arguing, um, said, or with which I'm arguing, said that, um, that we, I think you've gotten the whole condition of man before Christ. You've exaggerated that too much. You've exaggerated it. You, you don't understand that even even in our sin we have we can we can choose which I don't deny we can choose um, I just don't know how you can exaggerate and you were dead it doesn't say and you were mostly dead it says you were dead um, but however you get into that I think I think every Protestant would agree, and I hope every Protestant would agree, that in order to be justified, you have to trust Christ. You don't trust your faith. I have faith in my faith. We don't do that. That's Oprah. Um, we trust the object of faith, which is Jesus. Who is Jesus? We believe on Him. How we come there, we can discuss that's a secondary matter. And you don't have to believe as I do about that to be a Christian or even be in fellowship with me. I like to discuss it. But that's not the core issue of the gospel. The core issue of the gospel is, what has God done for us in Christ? And do I, is that, make that apply to me. Am I before God 
beating my chest, understanding where I am before Him, a holy God, make that apply to me. I think many times we get, we argue, and they're good arguments. I don't, I don't, don't we need to be thinkers and all of that. But we, we get distracted from, we're justified by faith alone. We're not justified by how well we can argue Calvinism or Arminianism or, you know, the, um, the, the ecclesiology and church means of grace and all that stuff. Those are important things and we should discuss them. We need to be thinking Christians. But at the core of it, it is, what has He done for me in Christ? Make that apply to me. That's justification by faith. And that is the article that Martin Luther said, the church either rose or fall, fell. Either rose or fell. It, it stands on trusting in what God has done for us in Christ, or it just, it's, it's just another worldly worldview. Um, all right. Paul says it this way, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it would only be a few weeks after Jesus tells this story that the final atonement would be made in Jerusalem upon the cross. Cross Christ, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so we have to ask ourselves, are, which one are we? Are we the Pharisee trusting in my church attendance, my good Southern Baptist roots? Um, I thank you that I'm not like the Methodists, you know? Are, are we that guy, or are we the, the tax collector recognizing who we are, beating our chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner? Where are we? All right, it's late, uh, of course, and uh, I'll pray. Father, thank you for your great mercy to us. That even though you had no obligation to save any of us and would be justly, um, would be just in your condemnation of every living human being for the rebellion against you, you saw fit in your great mercy to save sinners of which I am chief, of which I hope all of us believe that we are chief. Thank you that because of the work of the perfect righteous substitute, you clothe us in what he has done, and that you see us not as um, the party crasher, but as sons and daughters. What a great gift. I fear that we don't trust it enough. I fear that we come to the cross, we receive grace, and then we think, oh, wait, but I still got to do this, this, and this. And then we trust that rather than relying um, on Christ alone. I pray that you convict us of that and you reorient our hearts to, to look at Him and Him alone. But I also thank you that your faith, the faith that you've given us, the faith that justifies, is faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. That because you've transformed us and because you've changed our hearts, that you are calling us and we want to be uh, imitators of Christ. That we want to look like him more and treat each other, uh, even on Facebook, like believers and like, uh, like those who have been transformed by 
the gift of God's grace should act. And so we pray that you would continue to work on us and do what only you can do by your Spirit, which is uh, transform us um, little by little, day by day, precept upon precept, into the image of Christ, being fully completed on the day that He returns. I don't want to look back and say, oh, I, I should have done this better, and I know I will. And I know that when I do, I can, I can say with uh, the great uh, fathers of the faith that one thing I know, uh, I am a great sinner, and He is a great Savior. We thank you for that, and we thank you for Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Yeah, it's good to be here.